You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, what could sound like a very overly simplistic question, um, I have one to kick us off here, which I think we all need to answer. You don't need to answer it out loud, but this is a, a personal thing. The question is very simply, is God great? Is God great? Because the answer to that question really changes uh, everything. If, if he's not, then obedience isn't really a joy. It just becomes sort of busy work in following him. Hope is not grounded in the, the son of God coming and dying and rising. And so one day I have the hope that I, when I die because my faith is in him, I too will rise and be resurrected forever with him. Like that's my hope. If, if, if God is not great, if he's not great enough to have done that, then my hope just becomes sort of a, a sentiment to sort of walk me through life. But the psalmist starts out and says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So notice the two things. You've got great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So great is the Lord is the, uh, it's the doctrine, it's the fact, it's the, the, the data point that we have. And then greatly to be praised is the action that should flow from what we know about God and his greatness. And they should go hand in hand, that God is great, and so we respond by giving him the praise that he is due. However, you and I know people, and this has possibly even been us, that have sort of leaned one way or the other and maybe gotten a little bit out of balance before, where it's, um, I know God is great, but I don't really live my life that way. I don't really praise him in that way, or just maybe a little out of whack. If that's the case, it could be, you know, I can answer any question you ask me about God. Man, you give me a test and say, God is great, true or false, I will put true every single time. But if you were to ask people close to me, does Jim think God is great, uh, they may have to hesitate a little bit, right? Because maybe there's nothing that's manifesting itself. So we can be in this like, yes, God is great, and I have good doctrine, but maybe, maybe at times I lack the fullness of surrender to him. So the, 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 the thinking is there, the doctrine is there, but maybe not the action. Or the other one is um, the idea of we have all the praise, but the reality is maybe we've lost some of the reason for the praise. I think this particularly hits people that, you know, I grew up in church. I, I never missed a Sunday in church. I say grace before every meal in worship. Sometimes I get a little nuts. I'll do this right here. That's what I, I mean, I'll put my hands up. I might even close my eyes. Like I know how to praise. I know how to, I, I do all of that. But the reality is it might feel empty if I haven't been reminded lately about the greatness of God. So this happens frequently. You grow up in church, you hear about God, you learn about God. You're moved to praise him in these ways of reading the Bible and going to church and singing songs and praying and all the different disciplines that we have. But sometimes over time, this reason can be minimized and we can just sort of be going through the mode. We're praising him, which is good, but maybe the remembering the greatness of God has been minimized some. And the goal is that we want to, the best thing is to say, God is truly great, and therefore I will praise him in response, and my life will be worship to him. That's what he's saying here. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised in the city of our God. So today, what we're going to do, I want to show you again the greatness of God. Um, that's what this whole psalm is about, is the greatness of God. And then as they, you know, the Israelites too, they needed to keep this, be reminded of his greatness, and then, and then also be, you know, be shown how to praise God. And so they would do that in their community. 
And I think God in his genius said, don't go do this alone. Be around other people who profess me, who believe in me. And so today we're just gonna do two things. We're gonna talk about um, being reminded of why God is worthy to be praised and then just some real practical things about how do we praise him as a community of faith. So um, really it's the church. In fact, I will tell you, I have heard sermons about um, what is the church? I have heard messages about um, why should somebody go to church? Um, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talk about how to go to church. How do you wake up on a Sunday and maximize the time that we have together gathered as God's people? And so I wanna go through some stuff about the greatness of God and then we're gonna, we're gonna land on some of that. Um, so we gotta start, if we're gonna be reminded about the worthiness of God, the greatness of God, I gotta tell you a tale of two mountains. A tale of two mountains. It says, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, and here's one mountain, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Zion is a cool word, isn't it? There was a, uh, a woman that was pregnant and her grandma told her, this boy is gonna be special. There were some unique circumstances. She said, this boy is gonna be special. Find a unique name for him. And so she said, I did what I, what I thought would, uh, would, would be, wor- if he was gonna be a great child, I, I went to the best place I could. I started flipping through my Bible and I found the name Zion, and so she named his son um, Zion, and if you follow the NBA, he's been injured a lot, but Zion Williamson was a top draft pick a few years ago, and, uh, and she also said, now he's so big, he looks like Mount Zion, because he is a 6'6", 280-pound power forward. And she saw it and just went, well, that name sounds great. And so she just picked it, and the interview goes on, and she, she, they didn't really press her too much about does she know what Zion is. I hear the name Zion, and I go, that sounds really great and strong and powerful and unique, and it, that's a great name. Um, but the question is, do we actually know what this means when he talks about Mount, Mount Zion in the far north, a city of the great king? I think one of the reasons that we might just have a little bit of a nebulous idea of what this is Um, is because it's used several different ways in the Bible. It's always associated with the people of God. Uh, It's always associated with the idea of the presence of God, but there's um, one time it's referred to a location by the old city of Jerusalem. Um, One time it's used of Jerusalem itself. One time it's sort of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. One time, well, several times I should say, and then here you see Mount Zion, like it's a, we we would say a little hill, uh, a little hill Zion there as well. Um, It's also what we call the eschatological hope, which is the end time final hope that God gives his people, that God will dwell with them in Zion, it says, meaning God will be among his people. So somehow when you see this, it is the dwelling place of God. It is the, the symbol, the metaphor of the presence of God. And then when you say Mount Zion, um, you can get the idea of a mountain as something like big and strong and immovable that if you want to get to the top, you've got to ascend up to go see it. Um, when we were in Greece recently, uh, as a church we went, and, um, and uh, the, the tour guide said, hey, we're gonna drive by Mount Olympus. And I said, uh, I said, that's great, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see how these Greeks that were apparently so smart um, saw this mountain and thought all, all the gods lived up there. And um, we drove by it, and it's, um, the, one of the peaks on it is the highest point in, point in Greece at um, 9,600 feet. 
which I know is like, oh, that's cute, yeah. Uh, 9,600 feet, but like, and I get it, like we drove by and I was like, how do these fools think that God's lived up there? And then we drove by and it was kind of overcast and there was like this little ominous cloud and, <coughs> and he goes, there it is. And I was like, oh, I get why they thought that. Because it, there's, I couldn't find a picture, this is it. I couldn't find a great picture to do it justice. But it does just sort of come out of nowhere and it's the highest point of, of the other things around it. And so it is sort of this imposing mountain and you go, yeah, yeah, if I was, had a darkened mind, I, I would also go, I bet gods live up there. And I would believe when people said it because it just looks like this big, strong sort of place for the gods. So the idea of mountains was very strongly associated with the dwelling place of God or even like in the, for the Canaanites, um, they, had a, they had a mountain as well where they said it was kind of their Mount Olympus where they said their gods dwell. And it was actually in the text we read, but we miss it in the ESV. So let me, let me show this to you. In the ESV, here's what it says. So this is the English Standard Version that we just read. Beautiful in elevation uh, is the joy of all the earth. That's, I'm sorry, his holy mountain, so Mount Zion. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. The NIV, the New International Version that many of you read, I like that one as well, it says, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. So that's the first part of the verse. You can see how they're very, very similar and it's just a slightly different translation. But the next part gets very different and I'll try and explain why. The ESV says this, it says, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And then look at the NIV translation and look how different it is. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. So what's going on here? They're both taking from the same texts, from the same, uh, or Hebrew, I may have said Greek, sorry, from the same Hebrew manuscripts. And so why does, the, um, why does the ESV say Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king? Well, what's happening is in Hebrew, the word for north is Zaphon. And there was also a mountain named Zaphon. And so this text has this reference to Zaphon, and the ESV thinks it's just saying the north, and the NIV, which I happen to agree with in this case, says that actually what it's a reference to in the context of mountains is this one particular mountain that was in the north. They named it the North Mountain. They weren't very clever at naming mountains, I guess. Mountain in the north, we'll call it North Mountain. Sounds good. That's what they did. So I think all that to say, I think there's two mountains being referenced here. One is Zion, which we said is the dwelling place of God. And then the other one is this Mount Zaphon, which is, um, you remember the Israelites came into Canaan and you had all these Canaanite religions and all these Canaanite gods and they worshiped them at the top of one mountain in particular. It was their sort of Mount Olympus and it was called Zaphon. And so what the author seems to be doing here is to try and call out the uniqueness of God by saying here is Zion, the mountain, the dwelling place of the one true God, and then this other mountain to the north is everything else. It's a really great metaphor, I think, for, um, for a Christian worldview. Um, sometimes I think in the world people try to just say, you know, Christianity and every other religion, worldview, philosophy, whatever it might be, it's all basically just one huge sort of mountain range and they're basically all the same. And consistently what we see throughout the Bible is we see the uniqueness of God and the uniqueness of Christianity. There's one Mount Zion and everything else is on Mount Zaphon. 
is what he's saying. When they were in Egypt, when they were in Babylon, they worshiped God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Go worship this, go bow down or go to the fiery furnace. They're, they're not, they're not lo- located in the spot where worship happened all the time, but they are still worshipers of God. And they said, well, you better turn up the furnace because we will be worshiping God wherever we are. Hey, Daniel, you need to worship, bow down and worship. You can't pray to your God or you're gonna get fed to the lions. And Daniel said, bring it on. Our first century Christians, they would have to go in, I've mentioned this before, they would have to go in with a pinch of incense and say, uh, Caesar is Lord, and that was something that was done to specifically get at Christians, because everybody else just worshiped a ton of other gods, and they were like, yeah, sure, we can add Caesar to the mix. The only other people that couldn't were the Jews, and they got an exemption for political reasons, because they had a lot of political clout, and Christians didn't, and so Christians could not say, Caesar is Lord, and so they were martyred for this. I mean, consistently throughout the Bible, you don't see there's a whole bunch of just philosophies and worldviews that are basically the same, and God's maybe jumps out just a little bit higher. It is, this is how God sees the world. This is how we are to see the world. Uh, A pastor friend of mine, or kind of a mentor of mine, talks about um, one of the, he does a lot of apologetics, and he talks about um, that a lot of times we see all these philosophies and worldviews and religions as basically a whole bunch of different paths up to the top of the same mountain. And he says, if you just go, just go study another religion for 30 seconds, and what you'll see is we're not talking about different paths that basically get us the same place. He's saying these are completely different paths on completely different mountains. It is Zion, and it is everything else on Zaphon. In fact, one of the biggest difference, differences is every other religion, every other worldview, every other philosophy says somehow you have to work your way up and you have to earn something. And Christianity says the opposite. It says God has condescended to us in his son Jesus Christ. That God has done the thing that you and I in all of our goodness we would never be able to do. He sent his son Jesus Christ and he came and died. He came down to us. And our response of good works is just that, a response to the greatness of what he has done. It is not trying to earn favor and earn merit with him. So he starts out and he talks about the uniqueness of God. And then he's gonna go, the psalmist is gonna go into, I didn't count them, like five things. He is global, he is everlasting, he is steadfastly loving, he is righteous, and he brings true joy. Let me show these to you quickly. Verse three, within her citadels, God has made herself known, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, to picture the kings of the earth assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, and they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. What would happen in that day is you would go conquer someplace and you would go tear down their temples. And so they would, they would put a lot of guards there. And if they didn't put the guards there, then it's like a bunch of soldiers against a bunch of like, you know, priests or something, which was a pretty quick fight. And they would try to rip down the temple. And the idea is you rip down this temple and you look and you go, wow, they have defeated our God. Well, what happens here is it gives this imagery of kings of the earth coming to attack and they come to see the temple of God and then, it, and then it says they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. When it says by the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish, we're, we're not even exactly sure where, Tar, 
Tarshish is an interesting word to say, especially ships of Tarshish. Say that 10 times fast. Um, But Tarshish, we're not really sure exactly where it is, but you may notice there's a bunch of references to it in the Bible. And what we do know about it is this. Um, They are known, mentions a couple times that they are known for building ships that can travel a long distance. So it is probably someplace that is pretty far from Jerusalem or far from Israel. And then it's also, um, the most famous reference is probably Jonah. That God said, go up here, and Jonah said, I don't want to, and it said he went down here to take a ship and to flee for Tarshish. And the idea is, he is trying to run as far from God as he possibly can. Maybe if I get far enough, God won't be able to find me. And this text, as, it's, as he's talking about this, you've shattered the ships of Tarshish, the enemy comes against you, the kings come against you, they're in panic, they're trembling, they're in anguish. He's saying, God is the God of the entire earth. This is not localized God, which is called henotheism. It's not a God that shares his throne with others. That's polytheism. It is monotheism. It is the one true God over all the earth. He is global. He's also everlasting. It says, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, which God will establish, and there it is, forever. In antiquity, they would have, um, they would have other gods and they would put them on the throne and it was so unstable because if another military came in, tore down the temple and attacked them, they could lose and all of a sudden that God is just sort of done. They, they, they couldn't be eternal. And now the ones who did claim to be eternal were like the emperors and the pharaohs and things like that, which was really awkward when they died. They weren't eternal. God is the one true eternal God. In fact, let me just ask, who still worships Zeus today? There were centuries when that whole pantheon of gods was worshiped and everybody took it as true and today they call it mythology. It's myth, it's fiction. But in one day, there were thousands upon thousands of people that bought in, that worshiped it, that worshiped him. Um, we, we live today in a time where other mountains that are starting to spring up in our day and age are very, very recent. New ways of seeing the world that has been birthed even in one's own generation. Adaptations to this thing that has stood for a few thousand years or a couple thousand years. It will not last. This will last. Don't give in. Avoid the temptation of to say whatever's latest must be greatest. It's not. Now, if God is eternal and God is global, you would also think that he is distant. But look what it says. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. This picture of Mount Zion of God is a picture of not just love, steadfast love. Like, we, we, we live, like, well, let's go ancient first. Ancient religions would be based on, is this God loving towards me? Usually not. In fact, if you made him mad, even on a whim, sometimes they, would, they, they were in terror because they'd just kill you. And you would just die, and they'd say, he must have angered the gods. You could live a great life, mess up once, and, that, and you would die, and they would say, the gods must have just killed you. And what do we see with God? We see steadfast love. It's, it's, really, it's hard for us to even know what steadfast love is is I look at I look around today and I, I look at how like dating relationships, marriage relationships are places where things should be steadfast. I see um, teenagers especially that are maybe in relationships that are really, really great relationships and you think, oh, this is gonna last forever. 
until one little rumor goes around about something that you didn't even do. And all of a sudden, the love that you had for each other can just be torn. And this says, God's love is steadfast. Atheism, agnosticism today says that love only goes with being good enough. My love for you is going to be as strong as you deserve, and that's it. That's what the world says today. Is it any wonder why we live in a world of people pleasers? Is it any wonder why cancel culture works? Is because we go, we want to be loved, and I know that if I do one thing wrong, if I'm on the wrong team even for just one second, you might not love me. I'll tell you two things we know about love. Something, it is something that everybody in the world longs for, is to be loved with a steadfast love. To be loved regardless of our ups and downs. We have someone that will love us through it all. Christian, non-Christian, liberal, conservative, young, old, man, woman, child, rich, poor, no matter family background, church background, whatever it is, everybody wants love. And the other thing that I know is no one does it really well anymore. Steadfast love and God does. Isn't he great? It's not just love, it's also righteousness. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. And he says, your right hand is filled with perfection, with justice, with uprightness, with righteousness. Think about the despair we're living in today, which is um, the, the common thought in the culture is what do we do to inherit eternal life? Like if we're gonna have good karma or good stuff after this life, like what do we need to do? Be good enough. That's what it is. You need to be a good person and you should get what you have coming to you, exactly what you have earned. And then if you go, okay, good, so what's good enough? So who is the determiner of good? Oh, well, you just get to decide whatever is good. See, that's a train wreck. That is, I'm just gonna lower the bar so far that I'm a fantastic human being. Or what's really probably going to happen is if I'm the determiner of good and I've got a standard I have to hit, I, I can become obsessed with all my faults and failures and just live a life of despair. And this says, God is the one who has a standard of righteousness. Imagine thinking you have to be good enough to be saved and having no idea what good enough actually looks like. God is the global, eternal, loving standard of good. And we can never attain to that, but Christ did. And so look, it is the cause for joy. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. In, in, in our world, our world is a bad news world. We are a bad news world with 24-7 uh, news that is negative with clickbait headlines, with us um, lumping people into categories by, by what they're against, not what they're for. That's one of the things Noel talked about, by the way, I thought was fascinating. Um, by being known what you're, for what you're against instead of what you're for, it is negative, negative, negative. Why would you ever gossip about somebody? And the reason is, is because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and so if I gossip, all of a sudden, if I, if I just use this person and gossip about them, now I'm bonding with this person. We are a negative, negative world. Michael, Hort Michael Horton has a book called The Gospel-Driven Life. The Gospel-Driven Life, and he says it's, uh, the tagline is being good news people in a bad news world. The gospel literally means good news. And he says the good news is not just a series of facts to which we yield our assent, but a dramatic narrative that replots our identity. The heart of Christianity is good news. 
It comes not as a task for us to fulfill, a mission for us to accomplish, a game plan for us to follow with the help of life coaches, but as a report that someone else has already fulfilled, accomplished, followed, and achieved everything for us. Good advice may help us in daily direction. The good news concerning Jesus Christ saves us from sins, guilt, and tyranny over our lives and fear of death. It's good news because it does not depend on us. There should be the highest of joy at Zion. God is this global, eternal, he has steadfast love, he's righteousness, he's filled with joy, and then that's where you go, okay, now I'm really out of his league. And you notice what he does, he ends by saying, let me invite you into a relationship. Walk around Zion, go around her. Number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. He says, I wanna invite you into this. And we do it similarly to how the Israelites did, that we gather together with God's people to do this, to praise him. So I wanna just close with this. I'm gonna tell you how to go to church. If we are supposed to praise the greatness of God, part of being here gathered as God's people is we're reminded of his greatness. And then we praise him together. And I know in the Western world we say, I can praise God all on my own. Read your Bible. It says, be here with God's people. If God really, really is as great as the Bible says he is, we should praise him all the time and in every way that he gives us. I will worship him on my own. I will gather with his people and worship him as well. So I just want to tell you, I'll give you a couple stories about this as well. Two ways to go to church, how to make this time of praise and worship to God even better. Some of you may do this already. Two things, prioritize and prepare. Prioritize and prepare. There was a guy who, um, one, of, one of the most brilliant, godly men and women that I know we're at a church of mine in Dallas, and he was getting an award for being, I think it was sales, like the biggest sales producer for a huge company. I don't even remember the company. And they, were, they did something in Vegas, and it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And he was getting the big award for the whole thing. And uh, he told his boss, you know, it was a big deal, he's getting this big award. And he told his boss, you know, that's good, but we're gonna, we gotta leave Saturday night, we may not stay the whole time. And his boss said, no problem. Well, that was a couple months before. And then as it got closer, they called an audible while they were there and they said, um, the big award, but we're changing our schedule a little bit. The big award is going to be given out on Sunday, not Saturday. And this guy's name's Ed, not the Ed you're thinking of probably, not Ed Lang, um, different guy. Uh, his name's Ed. Ed was there and, and, uh, and he went to his boss and just said, just so you remember, um, I'm not here on Sunday for the big award and presentation it's kind of in my honor. I just want you to know. And uh, in the short version is his boss kind of went, well, what do you want me to do? We changed everything up now, and you know, what are we going to do? What should I do? And he said, well, you probably should have checked with the guest of honor before you changed the, the time of the event he's going to get an award. But that was kind of past. And so uh, he said, can somebody accept it on my behalf? And he was pretty adamant about, like, about someone's going to need to accept this on my behalf. And it was huge conference and tons of people there and this is his big moment. And he wasn't there and someone accepted it on his behalf. And he wrote a statement and someone read it. And uh, he said, um, it was very, he, and I actually got to read, it was very, very positive. Um, and he said, because on Sunday mornings, I'm back worshiping at my church 
and leading Sunday school for a bunch of high schoolers. And so he left, he and his wife in their mid-60s left at a flight that got, got into Dallas at like two in the morning or something crazy. And he, they got up and they got to church the next day and they worshiped there. And then they sat around with about 20 or so seniors in high school to help lead their Bible study. I would love, I would love to see gathering as God's people be elevated as a priority where God would have it be. You should have seen the look on my coach's faces when we said that my son can't play baseball on Sunday or very rarely will he be there on a Sunday. He looked at me like, what? And we were like, yeah. Like I think about this for parents. I say this as uh, we're about to send our first to college. I, I, I did not just try to shove enough Jesus into her that it's just gonna sort of go and she's gonna live off the fumes of that for the rest of her life. I have tried to model godly living for her, what it means to follow God, and then say, as you become a young woman, as you become this adult, um, I'm handing you off to a local church somewhere. Like one of the big hills I'm dying on is to say, I want you to value this thing of the local church and if it's not a priority for me, this was before I was a pastor too, if it's not a priority for me, one of the things that'll get passed on is it's not a priority. The, um, the couple that I told you that got back from Vegas, I really mean it, probably two of the godliest people you'll ever meet. And one of the reasons was they just had a priority of saying, I wanna gather with God's people and worship him. And the second one, I just say prepare. Let, let me tell you, when we, had, when we had little kids, let me just tell you about our morning. So when I was single uh, and church started, I lived about five minutes from church, so I could get up about five minutes and 11 seconds before church started, and I could get up, and I could, and I could just sort of throw something on, and I could get out the door and get to church, and I was just fine. Uh, I got married, and then I realized, like, okay, we got to sort of share a bathroom and kitchen, and, you know, there was a little bit more to do, but it wasn't that big a deal, and she would get up a little, early, a little earlier than me, and I would get up later, and, and we had it all worked out. Then when we had kids... Kids don't follow a schedule as much as you might like. And I remember getting up at the, like early on when we had kids and like, oh, well, you've got a nurse and we've got to get, I got the diaper bag together and I didn't, I put all the wrong stuff in it, you know, and we're grabbing diaper, we're, do, we're doing all the stuff. And I realized what happened was, and then, and then we're getting in the car and we're all frustrated because I had spent that morning, I had budgeted all my time to get stuff done and it was just go, 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 go. And I'm sort of at the whim of my kid and then getting here and pulling up and getting in and dropping kids off and then walking into the service and all of a sudden I would be there and it would take me about 15 minutes or so to sort of get out of my left brain over here to get over into my right relational part of my brain. And so the first 15 or so minutes just became sort of padding at the beginning of a service just to sort of, you know, get me in a good spot to now start worshiping. And so this was before I was a pastor, before I was on staff at a church. And then I started doing something that um, is not gonna sound very insightful. Whatever time I thought I needed to get up, I got up, 15 minutes earlier. And it was amazing getting up 15 minutes earlier. I don't drink coffee, but like if that's you, you could have your cup of coffee. You can relax a little bit. It can be kind of a, a time of setting your heart in worship as you're getting ready, whatever you are, if you're single or married or with kids or whatever, and you're getting out the door. As you're doing that, just getting up earlier and just setting your heart and mind and getting here or just a little bit early, there's gathering music to come in and see God's people and just relax. I mean, doesn't that just sound like a breath of fresh air? Amen. 
I can't tell you how all of a sudden when I just made that simple little shift of just getting up earlier and just getting going, all of a sudden my time here worshiping with God's people started to be um, maximized. Nikki and I have a different schedule on Sunday mornings, but I would even think on a Sunday morning, if you're there and you're parked and you're getting out of the car, and you're, say you're married or you're with friends or something, just take a second and just pray before you walk in. Try, try and turn off your brain to everything going on out there and come in here to the sanctuary and be with God's people and just, man, let it rip. Just worship him. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. 